Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Toby Harden, who is an author, journalist, and winner of the Orwell Prize, UK's most prestigious prize for political writing. His most recent book is First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11, and will be the main focus of our discussion today. A former foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times of London and the Daily Telegraph, who has reported from 33 countries, he specialises in terrorism and war. Born in England, Toby was imprisoned in Zimbabwe, faced prosecution in Britain for protecting confidential sources, and was vindicated by a 23 million public inquiry in Ireland. A dual British and American citizen, he spent a decade as a Royal Navy officer before becoming a journalist. He holds a first-class degree in modern history from Corpus Christi College, Oxford, and is the author of Bandit Country, the IRA, and South Army, as well as Dead Man Risen, an epic story of war and heroism in Afghanistan, for which he received the Orwell Prize. Previously based in London, Belfast, Jerusalem, Baghdad, and Washington, D.C., he now lives in Virginia. Toby, what an absolutely remarkable life you've lived. Thank you so much for joining me the Voice of War. Oh, thanks a lot, Maz. I'm glad to be here. So before we dig into the uh, your latest book, First Casualty, maybe let's get a little bit about your own background. Uh, and I note that you were in the military, uh, so maybe we can start with that. What drew you to the military initially, uh, and then, of course, later to become a journalist uh, and writer? Sure. So um, as you can tell from the accent, you know, uh, yeah, I'm a United States citizen, and but but British born, um, and you know dual citizen. So I'm mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. got my UK citizenship. But uh, you know, I grew up in uh, well, I was born in the south of England in Portsmouth, uh, which should be the first clue that my father was in the navy. Mm, you know, I was big, just going to say, big, yeah, 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 big naval port. And so uh, I'm fourth generation military. Oh wow! My father, my father was in the navy. Uh, his father was in. The army actually joined in the uh, mid 1920s with the rank of boy, and then retired as a major in 1950. Um, and his father was in the army, sort of like you know, fighting in Egypt in the 1880s. So you know, it's I guess that was the sort of family tradition. And I actually had a, a second great grand um, great grandfather um, who uh, was uh, captured in World War One uh, on. Uh, September the 7th mm-hmm. uh, or 8th, actually, I think it was, 1914, um, and then escaped from um, a German POW camp in March 1916. So, wow. so wow. I had that sort of lineage. And, you know, and I, I just remember my, particularly my grandfather, who's in the South Wales borderers, um, not the New South Wales, <laughs> South Wales. <laughs> um, the original. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the original South Wales, not the, the modern new version. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what, with his World War II medals and, and badges and bits of, you know, uniform and stuff and his and his stories of, you know, fighting in North Africa and and, and Europe. And so, that, you know, that was very much part of my childhood. Mm. And, I, you know, I, you know, I just would draw pictures of soldiers and actually I wrote a little book when I was about eight or nine, the adventures of private Murphy. So, I I mean, I guess I was always interested in the military. Wow. Um, Yeah. And at, at, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, most of, you know, my last four years of 
of like high school, secondary school. We're in Manchester and, you know, a long way from the sea. Um, but it just felt very insular and kind of, you know, small. And I just wanted to get out and, and see the world and, um, and sort of never return. And that's, <laughs> that's sort of what I did. And the Navy seemed like a good way of, of doing that. So I actually got my first, I did my first interviews for the Navy when I was 16 um, and the Falklands War was on, which was made it kind of very real and kind mm. of exciting. Um, and then I got a like a cadetship sponsorship through university. And so I did a year's worth of naval training, then three years at Oxford. And then I had like a return of service of six and a half years after yeah. that. Yeah, right. Wow. that's a, And I mean, I guess giving your family history makes absolute sense why you've uh, followed in those uh, footsteps. So, and, yeah. and, and writing and storytelling is, uh, again, very obvious why that's so close to your heart. But what made you then make the leap uh, to become a journalist? Well, I mean, so I joined the Navy in 1985. Um, so I was 18. I turned 19. Actually, the first week I was in was kind of a miserable <laughs> birthday. You know, start, I think it was uh, day one. Had those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, day one of basic training. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but it was, so there'd just been a big, from the Britain's, Britain's point of view, a big war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the, it was sort of tail end of the Cold War. And then there was the, you know, the Gulf War and I was based in Scotland for that. I tried very hard to get involved, you know, and I kind of yeah. lobbied to get sent and they, you know, weren't interested and could manage without me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it, it sort of felt, I traveled a lot. I mean, I, tr- I went to Australia twice. You know, um, I was, uh, you know, in Sydney for uh, the 75th anniversary of the Royal Australian Navy in 1986. Oh, wow. And then two years later for the uh, bicentennial celebrations. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which was pretty cool and great, fu- you know, great fun. And, you know. Um, Undoubtedly, yeah. Um, I, you know, I joined ships in Hong Kong twice, went to the Caribbean states, uh, like, like pa- Pakistan, Diego Garcia, Scandinavia. So I did a ton of traveling. But, you know, a lot of this was after the end of the Cold War. Mm. And it just didn't seem, uh, it just didn't seem real. Didn't it? It was like, what's the point? This is fun, and you, we're getting to see lots of nice places. But what's the point of it? Yeah. And so I guess I still had this sort of thirst for adventure, and I felt that I could, you know, satisfy that better outside the navy. Which mm. you know, and I also thought, well, I'll quit while I'm ahead because I don't really sort of love authority. <laughs> and, and and structures and system. I mean, I can operate within them. Obviously, yeah, but you slightly rebel. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, you know, as a junior officer, you have a lot of flexibility to kind of work the system and you know, kind of arrange things so they suit you. And it's sort of paradoxical. Paradoxically, the the more senior you get, the more you sort of have to toe the line. Yeah, yeah. the fewer options you have. So I thought, no, this is a good, this is a good time to get out and. Um, so yeah, I just sort of plunged into journalism because it seems like that it seemed like that's where the adventure was, and that's that's how that's how it turned out to be. And that's taken you some uh, to some interesting places, I suspect, as well. Uh, uh, coming towards the end of the century, I guess. And oh yeah, I mean, you know, I, my big break was pretty. I mean, I was a news reporter in London initially. I mean, I, you know, I did I did theatre reviews, I did mm-hmm. obituaries, you know, <laughs> yeah. just to sort of get my foot and get bylines. Um, but then I was, you know, a news reporter for a year, 18 months. And then my big break was getting sent to Northern Ireland in 96. And so I was, you know, 
in, in experience as a news reporter and there was you know I guess there was question marks over me like mm. can he do this he hasn't mm. had the training he hasn't hasn't done journalism course at college he hasn't you know mm. got shorthand he hasn't been on a regional paper and so by going to Northern Ireland that actually um just put paid to that very quickly because I was there I have to cover it I did and I kind of thrived on news really yeah. and it was a fantastic story um because I mean for a while it was the biggest story in the world mm. and it was small patch of land but which meant that I could go to everything and I could mm. make contacts and it was you know I could sort of create you know make an impact mm. um and it was this mix of of terrorism and peace negotiations which in terms yeah. of a new story was you know fantastic and very interesting and kind of you know lots of kind of opportunities there to get great stories lots of angles and i guess the dynamics yeah. that as a, as a journalist uh, i mean you you're looking for the nuance i suspect and that and i yeah. guess that if if i'm reading between the lines that also then carried you through uh, for the books that you published as well it seems as though that, uh, there is an element of of this dichotomy between the war and the conflict and then the well what is the ultimate outcome here you know when does all this stop yeah. um, you know where does when, when yeah. does the when does the war stop yeah and, and what does it mean you know so i obviously i love you know action stories mm. and battles and the gritty kind of reality of war and everything but there's a lot of that around particularly over the last 20 years and so I think, you know, yes, it's important to kind of put it in the strategic and political context. And I've very much tried to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, well, exactly. It's, it's, it's there, there is a bigger narrative between the blood and gore. Uh, and I guess that's what this podcast is all about. It's not, um, you know, I'm trying to look beyond the actual uh, guns and bullets. Um, yeah. Your, but your military career, I guess, would have set you up pretty well for that as well. And I guess because you weren't the cookie cutter journalist, so to speak, uh, you know, there was probably question marks hanging over your head, but when you went to Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland, you, you know, proved uh, that you could do it. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment that your military career actually, you know, equipped you with a, with a, with a different lens and, and rather yeah, than become yeah, mainstream? Yeah. 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 I think, and I think it's very useful as a journalist to have done something else to live, mm. to sort of being um, sort of on the other side and being involved in things that have been covered by the press and maybe, you know, I've read the coverage and thought, you know, I could do better than that. And I certainly did feel that in the Navy. And it, it makes you appreciate journalism as well, because um, there were some sort of contemporaries that went, you know, straight from university into national newspaper journalism. Maybe they mm. did a course in the middle or, you know, a few months on a regional paper. And I felt they never really appreciated it. But, you know, I was 28 when I became a journalist and I was like, I can't believe you get paid for this. This is this is fantastic. But some other people just seemed like jaded already and wanted to go and become, you know, merchant bankers or something. And I, I couldn't, yeah. I just couldn't identify that with that at all. And I mean, the other thing is, I think that the Navy, it, was, it wasn't much of a culture shock going from journalism to the Navy. In fact, I found a lot of kind of common factors mm. um, because, you know, you're working for an organization, but your job's changing. Um, a lot, you know, every couple of years, ideally, uh, there's a lot of sort of variety. No, no day is, is, is the mm. same. And also, um, I mean, I think a thing I learned from the Navy, I mean, maybe it was partly innate, but I think I learned a lot of it in, in the Navy, which was, you know, dealing with, you know, 
admirals and occasionally, you know, in the Navy, like Prince Charles and lords <laughs> yeah. and ladies and stuff, yeah. all the way down to ordinary sailors from, you know, some sort of godforsaken part of Scotland who you can barely understand, who, you know, <laughs> yeah. come yeah. from, you know, basically it was like go to prison or join the armed forces. And certainly in the context of a ship, you know, you're on board a frigate with 250 people and you get mm. to know all of them. Mm. You have sort of a relationship with all of them and you know their names and you say hi to them and, and you might be on watch for four hours and there's nothing going on and you're, so you're, you're talking to some sailor mm. and finding common interests and stuff. And that was v- very good background for um, journalism, I felt. And, and then also because I was covering the military a lot in Northern Ireland and subsequently, it just helped uh, understanding the rank structure, understanding the way you know, service people think. I mean, I think a lot of journalists, they can't, they come, they have no military in their background. They they can't conceive why anybody would want to be a soldier. And for mm. me, I could get it, you know, sort of mm. instantaneously. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and in Northern Ireland, I was the same age as um, a lot of the sort of junior officers. Um, and so, you know, it was very useful because I got on well with them, went drinking with them and stuff. And, and you know, I guess we each felt we were kind of kindred spirits. Yeah, you had you had found a way to build rapport quite naturally. Yeah. Uh, we, you, you were part of the in-group uh, that was just, yeah. that in this case just happens to be now writing about it as opposed to uh, being part of it, which is very interesting. Uh, I can't go past without asking you about um, uh, that you faced prosecution in Britain for protecting confidential sources. Was this to do with Northern Ireland? Yes. So... So that was, you know, when I was, yeah, in Northern Ireland for the Telegraph, I had to, I was writing about Bloody Sunday. Oh, you know, okay. So right. the 12 Catholics who were killed um, uh, in 1972 by the British Army Parachute Regiment. It's mm. sort of like notorious sort of incident and a core celebre amongst nationalists and Republicans in, in Ireland. And so at this particular time, for political reasons, really, there was going to be uh, an inquiry into Bloody Sunday, which was mm. something that Sinn Féin and the SDLP, the Republican nationalist side, had always sort of asked for. Mm-hmm. As, you know, they wanted justice, but it was also kind of like a stick to beat the British with. And yeah. so as a concession, they would be given this inquiry. And um, there was, you know, lots of controversy about, uh, you know, these old soldiers coming back to give evidence and whether they would be granted anonymity or or protection. So there'd been a an inquiry in the 70s called the Widgery um, Tribunal, and they'd all been given like letters, like Soldier A, B, C, D. E. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and at the at this time in uh, I guess it would have been 1998, um, the soldiers had been told they were going to have to give evidence um, under their true name, and and they were obviously you know surprisingly kind of upset about this, and so I was interviewing them about about how they felt about it. And I interviewed two of them and they said, uh, basically, we're not going to give evidence. We're not going to give truthful evidence. If they, if we're not going to be granted anonymity, right. we're just going to not tell the truth. And and so, you know, I wrote an article about that um, and it, it wasn't completely shocking to me that the tribunal immediately came after me and said, right, okay, you need to hand over your notes and uh, recordings and... You know, you need to give us the names of these mm. soldiers. Now, obviously, under journalistic practice and ethics, I, 
I couldn't do that, wasn't going to do it. And in fact, before they could subpoena me, um, I destroyed the tapes and notes. So because there was a case with The Guardian and a woman called Sarah Tisdall, who was like a, a whistleblower mm-hmm. um, in the early 1980s, and she ha- she leaked documents to The Guardian. There was then a court order, a subpoena to hand over the documents that they'd been leaked. The Guardian handed them over. The markings on the documents immediately identified the leaker, and Sarah Tisdall went to jail. And so that was very much in my mind. Yeah. And there was there was no way I was going to, you know, it's it's like a solemn promise when mm. somebody, you know, speaks to you on the condition of anonymity that you'll protect it basically for the duration of their life unless they release yeah. you from, from it. And they weren't going to release me. And so um, the tribunal uh, applied for me to be held in contempt of court. They... I was the first witness at the Bloody Sunday Tribunal and I was kind of roasted. I mean, it was, you know, I was like in this very, it felt like a very hostile arena. Mm. There were all these uh, lawyers for the for the families, you know. I, I mean, there was, it felt like there was half a dozen of them jumping up and down. I had nobody, there was no examination in chief. It just seemed all these people taking pot shots at me. Um, and then, you know, I was going through the courts in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, fighting this contempt order. And if I'd been found guilty of contempt, then I would have been uh, subject to a jail sentence. So it was, this was sort of hanging over me for, mm. I think, until 2004. And Jeez. then in the end, we knew, we always knew that they they had, and our, our, a central part of our argument was, is you know who all the soldiers were on Bloody Sunday because they testify before the Widgery Tribunal. You've got all the records. You don't need me to tell you. And so, you know, in the end, they dropped it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so, uh, you know, they the the, the soldiers uh, testified, um, but I didn't. I didn't give give uh, their names. And uh, yeah, it was just you know, it was just sort of one of those experiences. Yeah, it, it was been- time. It was time consuming. You know. It was, and I guess it would have been uh, trying as well, but maybe if I'm guessing, it would have certainly given you some uh, credibility with uh, later speaking to CIA operatives who are still yeah. currently uh, in the job and so on. Yeah, it's true that, I mean, it, you know, it meant that I was able to, you know, prove that I was I could be trust, trusted, that I wasn't just going to... Um, you know, take what I could get from people and then just, you know, burn them afterwards. Mm, mm, But I mean, mm. it's interesting. I got a lot of criticism from journalists at the time. And it's just, you know, it's just, it just shows that a lot of, a lot of people, they don't operate on principle. They operate on sort of which side they're on. And Mm. so the bloody Sunday paratroopers were not very popular people. Mm. And so, um, you know, basically, there was a lot of people like, "Oh, you should just hand, you know, hand it over." Or you shouldn't have destroyed your notes; that was wrong. And um, you know, so I, I found that was kind of interesting. But I think, long term, the fact that you know I dug my heels in on that and didn't waver at all was was yes, it was a it was a plus. Mm. And I guess uh, you know the point you're making is ethics are, are, are flexible <laughs> For, well, know, to some people, yeah. right? You know, that's the yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, and, and and before we and, and I'm pretty keen to get into the book, but I just also can't go by the fact that you were in prison in Zimbabwe. <laughs> what, what, what was that about? Because so, 
a, a dimension to you, I think, that uh, perhaps is, is, is interesting and important. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've thought about some of this, and maybe there's a pattern of pushing the envelope a bit. You know, <laughs> no, take, really? Take, yeah, putting myself out there and taking, I don't know about too many risks, but being very prepared mm. to take risks. But, um, you know, I've tried, I've tried, you know, I'm still alive. I've tried not, you know, kind of still have all my limbs, you know, so I've tried not to be reckless. Um, but I definitely believe in sort of putting myself out there. And so uh, this was 2005. Uh, and I, I just spent a lot of time in Iraq, actually. And I was with a photographer who'd also spent time in Iraq. Uh, Julian Simmons, and we were covering the parliamentary elections for the Sunday Telegraph um, in Mugabe's Zimbabwe. Um, we didn't have permits. You, you know, there was this very repressive law uh, that required you to have a state permit to be to act practice as a journalist, mm, mm, mm. and we didn't want to do that partly because we thought they wouldn't give us a permit, but we would then have signaled uh, that we intended to go to the country. Um, and also, even if we did get a permit, we didn't want to be followed around by Mugabe's sort of henchmen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we just went in as tourists and basically <laughs> we got caught. You know, we, were, we were at a, yeah. a polling station, which was a school. Um, we were in a ZANU-PF area, so kind of ruling party area. And a sort of a goon, uh, you know, grabbed us. And, you know, we tried to sort of walk very quickly out. To, the, to our rental car but uh you know then police came we were sort of handcuffed and we're in police cells and we ended up after a weekend in the police cells um we were taken to which we were taken to a prison and we were suddenly in a cell with a hundred other guys all zimbabweans um and uh we were put on trial uh, uh, accused of practicing journalism without accreditation and uh, I mean, we were, you know, we were facing, if we'd been found guilty, a potential like four year sentence. Mm. And both of us, I mean, we said to each other, as soon as we were arrested, like, it's not that bad. We're not going to get our heads chopped off because that's what we've been facing in Iraq, you know, mm. the orange jumpsuits and 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 all, all that. So, but still four years in jail in Africa would have been no joke. And <laughs> yeah. the, the thing we hadn't thought about actually was disease, which was the prob- the biggest, you know, should mm. have been our biggest concern. And and Julian got um, typhus and sc- scabies actually oh, in in the prison. Luckily, I didn't. I don't know why, but um, I didn't. I didn't get anything. So you know, it was an you know it was an adventure, um, and it me- means I can begin anecdotes and impress my kids and stuff by saying, well, when I was in prison. Um, <laughs> you but, think this is bad? You know, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the time, you know, on day, we didn't, we, you know, we suddenly were released and then deported. Mm. But, you know, on day 13, it was getting to be a little bit beyond a joke, you know, mm. and then mm. we started to get worried and kind of angry. Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, thankfully it wasn't a four-year sentence. And I guess your life has set you up very well to deal with conflict and understand conflict. And, and again, as you mentioned yourself, being a journalist who's had a life before journalism, uh, to then take that further while a journalist set you yeah. up well for uh, for writing now your third book. Uh, so maybe it's a good time to to dig into uh, First Casualty, which I just finished, yeah. and, and it's a nail-biter. It's an absolutely... Um, it is. It is as somebody who's deployed to Afghanistan, 
um, and who's tried to study Afghanistan, uh, who talks about Afghanistan quite a lot on my podcast. Uh, I'm blown away by some of the complexities that you bring through the pages in a very nuanced way without casting blame on anyone, which I, that, yeah. you know, that, I, I think that's something that struck me. I mean, you're, you're telling it as it is, but you're, you're also telling some really cold, hard facts, and it is for the reader to uh, really uh, dig into it a little bit deeper. I found that it made me ask a lot more questions, uh, you know, about the context of the war uh, than I perhaps have asked you know, in the past. Uh, but maybe oh, thank you. No, it was. Uh, I, I've highly recommended. Re- really, really. Uh, I, I want to say intense read, not because of the, but it's just one of those books that you just want to keep reading because it's just so. It is intense in the sense that it's uh, it's by the minute accounts of what's happened on the ground, uh, and some. And I'll let you then uh, share uh, as much as you'd like to share about uh, the content of it. Uh, but maybe we can start with uh, how did you even get connected to the story of nine eleven, uh, and then of course CIA. I mean, it's a uh, it, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it goes right back to 9-11. So on 9-11, you know, I was working for the Telegraph in Washington, D.C., in downtown, and, you know, I walked into the office just as the first plane hit. Mm. Uh, I watched the second plane hit, and I could see that it was an airliner, so I knew it was a terrorist attack. And, you know, obviously it's the biggest work day of my life. I knew I couldn't screw it up, um, but there was also another plane in the air, and there was reporting that it might be heading for the White House mm. or the Capitol, and I was – two blocks from the white house and i remember thinking like well it could land here it could just it could just miss and hit this building and then i was like well there's no point in thinking about that because if that happens that's it you know and i can't change it and i need you know i can't you know get consumed by concerns mm, like that i mm. need to focus there's a five hour time difference i have to fu- i have to work out what's going on and mm. file like thousands of words you know in the next three or four hours yeah and um and that evening, you know, there were Humvees and, and National Guardsmen on the corners of Washington, D.C. streets. And, you know, for the next two years, I was reporting, you know, on a country at war. And, you know, and I vividly remember, well, obviously now we have kind of a generation of people who don't, you know, how the world changed, how America changed, and the sort of the unity in the United States and the kind of burning desire to, get into Afghanistan and get to the people who did this and stop it happening again. Um, during that period, um, you know, I wrote a couple of articles about Mike Spann being killed, former uh, Marine Corps officer who was in the CIA um, and was part of Team Alpha, which is what this uh, book is about. And I remember his widow, Shannon, speaking very movingly at his funeral at Arlington Cemetery. And then everything everything moved on and it was Iraq and, you know, it's the sense that Afghanistan's over, but I sort of, you know, it, I was always, you know, very kind of interested in, in, in Mike Spann and, and uh, you know, that those early uh, CIA missions. Mm. And then in Iraq, strangely enough, a couple of years later, well, probably three years later in 2004, somebody said, have you seen the footage of the, of the CIA officer, you know, running for his life in the, in the fort? And I hadn't seen it. I watched it on YouTube and it was David Tyson, who was the CIA officer who was with Mike Spann. And David had just seen Mike Spann being killed in this uh, prison uprising, 400 Al-Qaeda prisoners. Um, And he'd had to kill or be killed. You know, he had to fight his way out, probably killed two dozen, three dozen Mm Al-Qaeda in the space of about 11 minutes. And there was German TV footage of him running through the fort briefly and then sort of bumping into this 
German TV crew. And I remember his staring eyes, like a thousand yard stare and thinking, you know, wondering what, what was just going through his mind. Mm. What was his experience? I mean, he was in, he'd been through an incredible sort of trauma. Um, he was in a very, very dangerous situation uh, still. And you could just see all that in his face. And so a few years later, um, you know, I was always very interested in that battle because the Battle of Kalajangi, that, that was sort of the first day of what turned out to be a six-day battle. And uh, there was CIA, um, there was Green Berets, there was British Special Boat Service, and there was a Navy SEAL who was serving with the SBS. Um, there were AC-130 gunships. There was John Walker Lynn, the American Taliban, although actually he was Al-Qaeda. Um, and there was Abdul Rashid Dostum, this uh, sort of warlord from Central Casting. So all these characters and all this action um, and so around about 2013, uh, I was back in the U.S. covering U.S. politics, I guess maybe being a little bored of it. And so I decided to track down David Tyson, or try to, and um, through an academic at Indiana University who sort of thanked him in some book acknowledgments, I got an introduction and I met David in a Panera Bread, like just a chain restaurant very close to here, so Northern Virginia, hmm. just outside DC. And it was strange, you know, because this has happened thousands of miles away and I'd seen it in Iraq and here we were, you know, living very close to each other. Um, he couldn't really talk because he was still in the CIA, but I could tell that he wanted to tell his story at some point in some way. And so I, you know, I tried to keep contact with him. Uh, I mean, for his reasons of employment, he was keeping me at a pretty arm's length. I, sometimes I wouldn't hear from him for, you know, for a year or two. Um, but then, um, you know, I, I actually got a book deal towards the end of 2019, um, hoping that I would speak to him, or but also thinking, if not, there's the SBS, there's the Green Berets, there's mm. the various sort of senior CI officers who'd, re who'd retired. Um, but then a couple of months after that, so early, early last year, I just get an email from David saying, Hey, I've just retired. I'm ready to talk. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, so that was a great moment. And then, so from that, you know, I just, I went to speak to David. Um, then there were a couple of others, J.R. Seeger, who was the chief. Um, David was a Uzbek linguist. It was based in Tashkent and had been an academic and, uh, you know, kind of steeped in the culture of the region. I think uh, that's a, I'll, I'll, I will definitely come back to that point because I think that's yeah. something that struck me as really, really relevant and useful uh, yeah. uh, as a lesson to take out uh, from the book yeah. the War in Afghanistan. Um, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. you uh, but no, not at all. Definitely come you back know, J.R. Seeger, who was the chief, was a diary speaker who'd been mm. worked with the Mujahideen in the 1980s as a CIA officer. Um, and then Justin Sapp, who was a Green Beret, the only soldier on the team, mm. um, who'd been on the Special Forces diver course in Key West, Florida on 9-11 and underwater, whereas David was in the air flying to London to talk to, to talk to um, people in the CIA station in London about Stinger missiles that the CIA had sold to the Mujahideen in the 80s. So to try and buy back. Very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's very... And so right immediately, um, I got the sense of these incredible characters. And so I wanted it to be... Um, a character driven narrative. And I, initially I sort of felt that it was going to be the six, the six day battle. And that's still very much in there, mm, but mm. it became more 
the story of Team Alpha, these eight CI officers, first behind enemy lines after 9-11, sort of dropped into the unknown. And all these, this, you know, very interesting characters. I mean, they this, you know, the oldest Alex Hernandez was was 49, Sergeant Major. Uh, the youngest was Justin, who was a Green Beret. You had Mike Spann, who's kind of this, you know, tough Marine who with very much like America after 9-11, with us or against us, let's go get them, you know, sort of kill them all, let God sort mm, them out mm. type of kind of mentality. Mm, and that's mm. the way the country was. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and eventually, um, you know, I, I approached people, you know, completely separately from the CIA and I had no official sanction or anything like that. But uh, at a certain point, I'd spoken to, you know, Shannon Spann, Mike's widow, who was also a CIA officer, uh, you know, by then retired, um, and Kofa Black and Hank Crumpton, who were senior guys who sort of ran the war. So I think I'd built up credibility and trust. And so the last, so the six surviving members of the team, you know, obviously Mike Spann was killed, um, and Mark Rausenberger, the medic, was died in, 19, in 2016 in the Philippines. Um, and so there were three more I, I wanted to speak to. And so I, at that point, I approached the CIA and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And they were like, yes, we know, we've heard. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> right. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was surprised um, that they were very positive, you know, mm. and they didn't open the vaults. They didn't give me any secret cables or mm. anything like that. But they mm -hmm. did facilitate interviews including with serving people because Andy from the team was, is still serving um, and uh, a couple of other people. Um, who Why was that? Mike Span. Why was that? I mean, that's a, I've got that down as a question to, to ask because yeah. that struck me as, I mean, having dabbled in that world myself, uh, I'm very conscious of the need to protect the individual's yeah. well, identity uh, and then to open the doors up quite intimately to a journalist, although yeah. validated, um, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. still a really, really risky, especially serving, yeah, serving a, officers. Yeah, so it is a bit of a risk for them. And, you know, a lot of bureaucracies and government organisations, they're very risk-averse because mm. nobody's going to take you to task for uh, not letting somebody in and saying, oh, that was a great opportunity we missed. But if it goes wrong, then they'll be like, "What? you know, why the hell did you you know, facilitate mm. this. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, my pitch was um, that, you know, it was history. Uh, it's 20 years ago. So there's very, you know, we're about to be out of Afghanistan. There's very few kind of operational security considerations here. Mm -hmm. um, also, lots of other people have told the story, like the Green Berets have had the movie, Horse Soldiers mm. book and 12 Strong Movie. Um, and the CIA was kind of written out of it. So there's, you know, that was a little button I pushed. And also, you know, George Tenet, CIA director at the time, had described it as the CIA's finest hour. And so part of my pitch also was like, you know, listen, this was a success that a lot of people have forgotten that you, you know, you spearheaded the war in the early months, topple the ta helped topple the Taliban. And, you know, then the Pentagon took over and it all went wrong, you know. And so I guess they kind of I guess they kind of bought it. I mean, I think the people I'd already interviewed said, yeah, this guy's serious. You know, he, you know, he seems to be a straight shooter, doesn't have any sort of hidden agenda. And so, but, you know, I'm very grateful that they, they, you know, they did take the risk. 
Dare I say it, you humanted the CIA. <laughs> well, that's one of the weird things about this is, is yes, exactly. Because the other thing, people, the other phrase people use, oh, you're case offering, case officering somebody. Yeah. And so, you know, you're trying to build rapport. You're trying to get them on side. Um, you want them to talk. You want them to relax. Um, you know, Obviously, if there's, you know, if you both like dogs, you start talking about dogs or sports <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly, that's their entire job yeah. to do that kind of stuff. And so it's a sort of a weird thing because, you know, it's a sort of a natural human way to sort of engage and build rapport. But, but at the same time, um, you know, it's sort of transparent what you're doing because they do it. And so, you know, sometimes I would joke, I would joke about you know yeah. there'll be jokes about that kind of stuff yeah your case off, uh, officer in your case officer yeah. i know <laughs> or humi- your yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. well which is why i made that point uh right at the start about uh you know your time in northern ireland and being prosecuted for protecting uh sources i mean that i suspect would have been okay this guy's he, he stands by what he means and uh and that would have yeah you know reinforced a little bit of trust uh as well yeah and the two previous books were kind of nice, good calling cards mm. that I was, you know, you know, that I was serious. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, I did things sort of, you know, uh, that I believed in accuracy and um, context and, and comprehensive accounts and stuff. So, you know, that, that, that I think that helped as well. Mm. So without, of course, giving away, you know, the, the entire book, and, I, and I'm happy for you to share what, as much as you're willing to share, but, uh, you know, the Wavetops, what, what is the actual plot of the book? Uh, you've made some mention, uh, but, you know, m- yeah. m- maybe giving us the kind of broad plot outline. Sure. So very much starts on 9-11 uh, with David flying from Tashkent to London um, and not learning about the attacks until he lands at Heathrow and that it's all over. Um, uh, Justin's underwater at the... CIA dive school and kind of, you know, is, is um, rinsing out his dive gear. And, and one of the sergeants says, do you hear what's just happened in mm. New York? Mike spans in CIA headquarters um, and is furious that the building's evacuated. And he's like, you know, we don't just go home with a CIA. We do things, we do something. And, um, and then, you know, Kofa Black is the sort of man of the hour, the uh, head of the counterterrorism center. And, he has a plan. The CIA has a plan, which was outlined in a thing called the Blue Sky Memo, which was the result of um, the Bin Laden unit, uh, the Alex Station that was set up in the CIA in 1996. So there's a small kind of cohort of CIA people that are extremely focused on Al Qaeda. I mean, there've been mm. embassy bombings in East Africa in '98. There's been the USS Cole bombing in 2000. There was the Millennium uh, Plot. Um, and so the CIA saw it coming. They didn't know exactly where or when, but they knew, knew it was going to happen. And so they had this kind of concept of small teams of CIA officers and Green Berets going in to Afghanistan, working with the indigenous resistance, the Northern Alliance, um, as sort of ad- as advisors, but to Afghan fighters and calling in uh, American air power and getting to Al Qaeda mm. that way. Clinton administration wasn't interested. The Bush administration wasn't interested before 9-11, but everything changes on 9-11. And Kofa Black, you know, sells the plan to Bush um, and, and in a very, you know, Kofa Black, um, who I've got to know well, actually lives also lives very close to him. <laughs> um, he's, you know, told it in a very theatrical way, you know, like when we finish, there are going to be flies walking across their mm. eyeballs, you know, mm. and we're going to bring mm. back Bin Laden's head on a pike or, you know, in a yeah. box 
full of dry ice and just <clears throat> language that fitted the moment and also worked very well on Bush, you know. And so yeah. in a way, Kofi Black was case officery, you know, George W. Bush. And of course, um, the, well, the subtitle of the book is Avenging 9-11, right? Yes. Was the, and, and I think yeah. that's, I think that's an, again, an important aspect of it. This was about, yeah. you know, and Bush was quite clear about that. Yes. Uh, you know, and so was the, and certainly Mike Spann was and everybody on mm, that team. That, mm -hmm. was, that was a part of it. And yeah. yeah, I mean, there was some debate about that. I and mean, Shannon Spann, for instance, Mike's widow, was a little bit like, really? I thought it was to deny sanctuary to Al-Qaeda and collect intelligence. And it was, but I think... And the I emotion. On the, yeah. yeah, and I spoke to people on the team, like Justin in particular and David as well, were both, well, yes, but, you know... You can't have every caveat in a subtitle and, and certainly mm. Avenging 9-11 was, was a big mm. part mm. of it. Mm. And so, you know, once Bush has bought, you know, bought the plan, um, bought into the plan, um, the CIA is putting the teams together. And so there's a, there's a team called Jawbreaker, um, which went in on September the 26th, but they went in uh, to the Panjshir Valley, which is where these previous CIA missions have been going in and out of, uh, to link up with the Tajiks, and Ahmed Shah Massoud, uh, the Northern Lights leader, being assassinated on uh, September the 9th, um, just before, you know, two days before 9-11. And so they were in some sort of disarray. But Jawbreaker was kind of fixed in place. There's lots of politics going on with the Tajiks. They didn't really want to fight. They wanted money. They wanted US uh, bombs. But Team Alpha, the next team in, um, you know, with Mike Spann and... and David Tyson and Justice Sapp and all those guys, they were the first behind enemy lines. They were in the mountains and Taliban controlled territory. And they linked up with Dostum who just, who wanted to fight. Mm, mm. And so he was, you know, Kofa Black was the man of the hour in Washington, DC. Dostum was the man of the hour in Northern Afghanistan. And all of a sudden this kind of brutal warlord who's accused of all these human rights atrocities, he was, he was the guy. For, he was the freedom fighter. <laughs> yeah, for the Americans. Yeah. For that yeah. brief period, I mean, yeah. uh, once, you know, once the Taliban had gone, the US didn't want anything to do. Yeah, with we changed the labels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't want anything to do with, with yeah. Dostum again. Yeah. You know, he was a warlord and, you know, mm. he, you know, he needed to be marginalized. Um, and so, you know, it's a story, it, you know, the book then is it's a story of the team getting put together and they didn't know, each, you know, some of them didn't barely knew each other. Uh, four par paramilitaries and you know they had been a, a team but then you had david and jr um and justin and mark the medic who were sort of added on and so you have this eight-man team no helmets no body armor no military kit and they fly in on two black hawks um you know into the unknown link up with dostum and you know it's the story of the, of the fight in them in in the mountains and uh sort of manipulating and kind of organizing the tribes you know mm. which involves a lot of you know very kind of sterling kind of intelligence work by jr seager in particular of you know getting the the allies to be allies and not rivals or worse than that enemies which was no easy feat in this period um and mazari Sharif falls which is the first domino in 2001 and the sort of beginning of the end of the of the taliban regime um and then, you know, then it becomes the story of the of the prison uprising. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. the main effort, the last stand of the Taliban in the north is in Kunduz. That's where most of the Americans are. And there's this kind of skeleton crew left behind because there's this sense, you know, certainly in Washington that, you know, 
the war in Masri Sharif is sort of over, mm. but you know, spoiler alert, it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> yeah. you've got 400 Al-Qaeda surrender, and then it all kind of converges on this Fort Kalajangi, you know, the house of war, um, just outside Masri Sharif on November the 25th, 2001, when mm. David Tyson and Mike Spann go in, you know, with Afghan intelligence officers and Afghan guards, Northern Alliance guards, to interrogate these 400, sort of do an initial sift and kind mm-hmm. of work out who they are. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was a whole combination of unfortunate circumstances. There's only two of them instead of three because Justin had to go and deliver a vehicle. Um, the Green Berets who might have gone with them were in Kunduz uh, and the others had been given an order because there'd been a suicide explosion the night before not to go into the fort. Um, there was a sort of imperative to get in there because it was Al-Qaeda and the mm. first Al-Qaeda that Americans have got their hands on since 9-11. And so, you know, they took a risk as they took, you know, they took risks every day. I mean, this wasn't a wasn't an ordinary day. And there were still fears of, uh, of further attacks, right, from Al-Qaeda. So that was oh, a yeah. I mean, motivation just, as well. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you know, and b- being in the United States at the time, you know, I really remember this. It was like, is there going to be another attack tomorrow mm. or next week or next month? And so there was, you know, and we've now had 20 years without an attack on, on major attack mm. on the homeland, uh, which was something, you you know, you could never really have predicted and hasn't been by accident. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was the sort of the spirit of the times and certainly the spirit of Team Alpha and Mike Spann and David Tice was not like, uh, let's just wait until the situation's calmed down a bit and we have a, you know, we have some extra security and we've flown some FBI agents in. Mm. No, it's like, we need to get in there now. You know, we need to, you know, we need to sort this out. Um, but, you know, it was a plot, but it was a plot, a Taliban al-Qaeda plot to retake Masri Sharif. And so the uprising was just one part of it. But, you know, as soon as the uprising was happening, uh, J.R. Siga, who was in Kunduz, and then the Green Berets in the Turkish school, mm. which was the headquarters in Masri Sharif, they could see Taliban force movements kind of moving away from Kunduz and uh, from the other side, from Balkh city towards Mazari Sharif. Mm, mm, And mm. so it was was sort of like, holy shit moment that, you know, if they take control of the fort and break out, then there could be a sort of, you know, Somalia, Black Hawk Down kind of massacre body, American bodies being dragged through the streets Mm, of Mazari Sharif. mm, mm, mm. And um, which at that time would have been, uh, I mean, these were the first forces on the ground and a Trojan horse yeah. move that, uh, you know, could have yeah. really, really had a significant disproportionate strategic impact and, and a victory for, uh, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it would, yes, the whole course of history after 9-11 would, mm. have, yeah. would have changed. Um, and so, you know, it was not just some kind of spontaneous uprising or some sort of accident mm. or something uh, the CIA officers did that upset the prisoners and, you know, all these things have been kind of floated. Um, but yeah, so it becomes like a six day battle. I mean, there's, mm, there's mm. a 15 man rescue force that with the eight SBS, including the one seal, um, there's Glenn, which is just, which is just another medic. crazy little thread in there. I mean, the eight, yeah. firstly, the SBS and then the, the seal that's uh, attached to them. And, and of course the role they play, uh, in there as well. I mean, it's just a, yeah. you know, you couldn't make this up. This was just a, I mean, you know, completely understand why you were fascinated by this story. Yeah. Because it is just. Yeah, you, yeah, it's so. Colorful. So you have these fifteen guys, mm. you know, again, a bit like Team Alpha, like hastily kind of put together, going into the unknown, um, arriving at the fort, and just you know, they just like 
gunfire ordnance because there's a load of weapons stored mm. in containers mm. in the fort which the Al Qaeda got their hands on, and um, yeah, they're trying to they're trying to sa- save David. They're trying to find out where they think he's dead, but they're not sure. They're trying to locate Mike and Steph Bastard Seal crawls forward at dusk and you know identifies Mike's band's body and you know fires shots either side of the body to see if there's any movement or flinching and the and there's mm. none. Um, and the, and the battle goes on for 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 six days and you have mm. AC one thirty gunships coming in. There's a two thousand pound JDAM dropped dropped on the wrong position, which mm. kills Afghan allies and you know wounds a bunch of SBS and and Green Berets and you know and the the Al Qaeda guys are like firing mortars, you know mm. RPGs, everything. I mean they were skilled fighters mm. and uh you know the northern alliance really kind of struggled to defeat them and then on december the first 2001 you know they're eventually um sort of almost literally flushed out of the the mm. basement of the pink mm. house which is the building where they'd all kind of converge which had like a an underground bunker which i went to a year ago oh, wow. uh, which was just spooky as hell wow, um, yeah. so many people died down there mm. um and 86 I mean, the, the presumption is nearly all of them are dead. And then 86 of them emerge, including John Walker Lind, you know, all bedraggled and, you know, emaciated and blackened and some, a lot of them are wounded. Um, and they emerge uh, and that's the end of it. Uh, mm. And, you know, Mike Spann's body has been recovered, but that took a couple of days. Mm. Um, and so just, you know, just kind of an incredible story. One of those um, instances of, you know, you couldn't make it up. The best, you know, the best stories are true because mm. uh, yeah. kept on finding out these incredible things about these these Team Alpha guys and 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 these events. I mean, it strikes me as though you could you could literally write another four books out of this. You know, focusing on particular aspects of either the battle or the individual teams. Um, yeah, but, and I mean, and as you, I, I, I love the the one you chose. Uh, you know, Team Alpha going in. Maybe we can drill down into that a little bit because there were, you know, some of their members were rather unique. Like you mentioned, J.R. Sager uh, and David Tyson, they were rather unique in what they understood of the of of Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, and and maybe you can talk about that a little bit because I think that becomes relevant as the war unfolds. Uh, yeah, you know, in in the next twenty years. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you picked up on that because I think that's that's very important. So these are two guys with extensive experience in the region and in Afghanistan. And both of them kind of conclude pretty early on that this is uh, the complexity of Afghanistan. There were very, you know, a big part of these events. It was incredible success. And and I think the formula of uh, hundreds of Americans, you know, rather than 100,000 Americans, NATO forces, you know, assisting the allies, uh, the Afghans, but making it an Afghan fight, that worked, that that worked. But at the same time, you know, unreliable allies, you know, friendly fire, ambiguous surrenders, issues with prisoners, human rights issues, you know, uh, rivalries between um, ethnicities and tribes. Those are all signs of, you know, how difficult this was going to be. And, you know, David, very early on, uh, even though you know he speaks near native Uzbek and you know understands these Afghans intimately, he is struck by what he calls you know peeling the layers of the Afghan onion. 
And he sort of concludes that, you know, that he could spend several lifetimes trying to work this out, but he would never mm. get to the kind of truth of, you know, he'd never understand it all. And this yeah. is a guy that knows, you know, more than almost any other American. Um, and J.R. Seeger, similarly, um, he, you know, w- you know, he's a big believer that Afghanistan isn't really a country, Cle- mm. a collection of tribes and ethnicities. Um, and, you know, we can, like the sort of colonial, in- British colonial officers of like the 19th century, you can influence and you can try and shape it, but it's their country that they're, they're different from us. And uh, we can't try and refashion this place uh, in our own image or even, you know, as we did, try and run it from Kabul and have a sort of centralised democracy. That's just not what Afghanistan is. Mm. And so I think with both of those men, and they were case officers, you know, so spies, you know, intelligence operatives, you know, they both have military backgrounds, but uh, they were intelligence officers. And both of them, you know, I think were kind of examples of the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, Mm. you know, whereas ignorance is bliss. You know, you just go in there and you're I'm an American and I'm here to sort it all out. Just here's some pencils for the kids and, you know, a bit of grain for the farmers and and plant these, you know, crops instead of. Um, yeah. opium and it'll all be okay. And, and those and, those yeah. shooting are the bad guys and those waving it are the good guys. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you yeah. know, obviously, you know, um, slight sort of caricature, but... But, but not, I mean, but know, again, in my own experience, not necessarily too far from the truth. Um, yeah, I yeah. Admit, yeah. And so, um, you know, both of them were proponents then and obviously now of, you know, the of the light footprint that, that worked in 2001 rather than the, you know, USA Inc. and big army and bases and uh, tens of thousands of uh, conventional troops and and sort of letting the Afghans work it out, which is mm. always going to be messy. You know, I mean, that, that, the, the the surrender that that led to the 400 Al Qaeda coming to the fort was very sort of opaque and ambiguous. And Jr. was there, but he let Dostum and Mullah Fazl, who's back in government for the Taliban, um, <laughs> sort of butcher of hazaras in the north um but you know he let them do it because it's this is this is afghanistan and it, it, it's their country um and so i think you know the success with the in this limited way with this these small numbers of americans at the beginning was um you know it was kind of a template for how it could be done but ironically because it was Victory was so swift, I think there was this sort of sense of, well, it's easy. So let's shoot mm. for the moon. Let's do centralized democracy in Afghanistan. Um, and let's just try and reshape this country in, in our own image. Uh, and also let's exclude any remnants of the Taliban because, you know, they're terrorists, they're the enemy. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not dealing with them. And so, you know, I feel that you know, this is a period of sort of great success, but really the tipping point towards what was eventually, you know, kind of surrender and defeat was, you know, December, start of December 2001. Mm. Yeah. And the early victory, I mean, and it was a a victory against Al-Qaeda, right? That was the original mission. It was to go and prosecute uh, Al-Qaeda. Yeah, Al-Qaeda was expelled. 
Hmm. Uh, not completely. Obviously, um, Bin Laden was still at large for another 10 hmm. years. Um, but, you know, hindsight, you know, easy. But there were people, you know, certainly, certainly JR, people like JR and David and the CIA at the beginning were like, okay, you know, we should take a step back here. And instead, you know, the Pentagon takes over and, you know, Americans pour in. While at the same time, a lot of the kind of the brain power and sort of resources of government are diverted to Iraq. Mm, so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it took you out of the ball. I mean, I guess one of the things that I, that I find really interesting, and, and you made the point just then of uh, referencing uh, J.R. Sega, you know, if you can even call it a country, right, Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess it begs the question, well, whose Afghanistan were we then building, right? Because if you think, you know, who we supported and who we then turned our back on and who we excluded. I know. I mean, you know, this was the, you know, the venue for the great game in the 19th century, you know, sort of, clash of you know russian empire and the, and the british and if you just look at you know countries that border afghanistan you mm. know china has a small border you know pakistan iran you know three former soviet uh republics you know this you know it and now there's a vacuum and and everybody's vying for sort of control and territory and sort of primacy um you know Pakistan clearly supported the Taliban all the way through, and, and that was another factor in these early um, in these early weeks. It, there was an Iranian intelligence officer hanging around, you know, when the when the um, when and gave his condolences arrived. as well, which I've uh, you know, yes, it's just a, a, again an interesting little point of the human relations as opposed to the yeah political yeah yeah he the same guy po- yeah popped up after Mike Spann was killed mm. and yeah and offered mm. his condolences to 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 team alpha and so you know obviously it's kind of depressing at the moment and um certainly the members of team alpha i mean they're working very hard to get afghan allies out but um you know there is this sense of you know what was all for yes we stopped uh, attacks on the homeland for the last 20 years but you know there's no afghan opposition now the you know the panchers fallen and you know Al Qaeda uh, is still there. You know ISIS K is there. Um, you know senior Al Qaeda guy is the Taliban interior minister. And uh, you know we talk about over the horizon attacks and stuff, but you know that's not very convincing to put it mildly. Mm. Mm. Um, and so you know it's kind it's uh, kind of depressing. I mean I. I do think, though, that the, the, the story in Afghanistan is not over and, and Taliban is going to have a hell of a job governing this place. They've got, you know, they haven't got majority support by any stretch. They have sort of no mandate. They seem to have no plan as to how to how to govern. There's a humanitarian crisis just around the corner. And so I do think there will be, um, you know, resistance and opposition again. But, you know, given you know those early successes is kind of told in the book and you know the blood and treasure of the last 20 years it's it's you know it's not a great position to be in and that's certainly the feeling from the the surviving team alpha members mm. yeah and that's definitely a point i want to uh, i want to touch on as well and i find the, the timing of your book rather amazing uh, you know there's a you know obviously we're coming up 
or we just had the 20 year anniversary of uh, of 9/11 uh, and coming mm-hmm. up very close to uh, in a day for me and, and and two days for you on the anniversary of 20 years uh, death of Mike Spann so the first casualty of the war and yeah. of course it's coinciding with the return of the Taliban uh, yeah. you know in August of this year now i suspect the the, the first part was not co- coincidental i mean i think it was probably planned as part of the, you know, 20 anniversary of the war that yeah. was rather timely. Um, yeah, yeah, we were definitely planning it for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, you know, I guess, you know, in t- throughout 2020, there was a kind of a sense of, well, the war's probably, you know, finally winding down from the American point of view. And, you know, and in the election, both Trump and Biden were promising to pull out all American troops. But, you know the sort of national security consensus was there should be a residual for, force of, you know, 5,000 or so to prop up the government and keep Bagram open. Mm. Um, and, you know, but I was, when I was there a year ago, I had the strong sense of like, this is over. It's just a matter of time because the Taliban had surrounded Shebagan where I was interviewing Abdul Rashid Dostum. And I didn't see a single NATO troop in six weeks. And mm. the Taliban clearly, you know, you couldn't drive from, you couldn't drive from Kabul to Masri Sharif. You couldn't drive from Masri Sharif to Shebagan. And so the Taliban clearly controlled, you know, large swathes of the, of the country. Um, and then, you know, just as I was kind of wrapping up, really, in April, Biden announces all the troops are coming out mm. on September the 9th, uh, September the 11th, the 20th anniversary. And, uh, you know, that changed to, August the 31st and you know and it was clear that the Taliban was were, you know were, essentially the US had already, already under Trump had surrendered in negotiations and and then you know uh, you know there was this sort of sense of inevitability but um, yeah I mean just as I was putting the book to bed finally in June it was looking very ominous um, mm. and then and then it all completely you know unraveled in august as we know and so yeah at the beginning i would not have predicted that was going to happen Mm, mm. how do you think this book fits into that piece of the puzzle i mean do you think you're i mean what what lessons are we to draw both from your book but also from the ultimate outcome of the war well yes i mean i think there's sort of two different things in in a way because i i don't i mean there was a lot of commentary uh in August that, you know, I was doomed from the beginning. It was all, it was always a fool's errand and it's kind of suggestion we should never have gone in, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, at the time, um, you know, one member of Congress, Barbara Lee from California in the house of representatives voted against authorizing force only one out of, you know, 535 Mm. members of, of Congress, you know, the UN was on board, NATO was on board, Bush's popularity was 90%. Um, and you know, I still have no doubt that it was it was the right thing to go to do to go into Afghanistan. But but I think people have forgotten why we went there, and the sort of the limited uh, war aims and the and the sort of limited nature of the conduct of the campaign. And you know, I think at the end of something, it's very useful to go back to the beginning. And I think people have been surprised to sort of be re- reminded that we were successful at the beginning, and so I, I don't think this was it, this was doomed. 
uh, this whole enterprise was doomed. Um, and just because something happens doesn't mean it was inevitable that it would happen. I mean, that's just not the way sort of life and history works. Um, and, you know, I think there are lessons that, you know, America is a country when we put our minds to it and when we unify, we can achieve incredible things. I mean, to go in there and do that, do what Team Alpha and the other CIA teams and the Green Berets did was incredible. Um, but, you know, a bit of, I don't know, humility, a bit of sort of realism, a sense of that the that the world is a sort of a dangerous place and, uh, you know, other countries are different from us and other peoples are different from us. And we have to sort of deal with that. We can't just, you know, shape everything to be, you know, how we think it should be, or, you know, we can't assume that the natural state of every person in the world is to sort of be an American. Mm. Um, And so I think there are, there are a lot of um, lessons um, about sort of mission creep and, uh, you know, overextending ourselves and being too ambitious with our sort of foreign uh, projects. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot to take from this period. And it was, it was an amazing experience for me to sort of be able to tell, tell that story, which was sort of, you know, richer and more varied and more kind of, I don't know, sort of cinematic than I would mm, ever mm. imagined at the beginning. Mm. And, and and for me, probably one of the best, one of the most important things that I took from the book is is this realization that we need to really understand the ecosystem of an area of operation. Uh, and I think you you really bring that to light, you know, through the relationships and the alliances and how how JR Sega and and David understood the local context and mm. really, I don't want to say they played. The various warlords. Well, I mean, well, I guess they did, right? Or, the, or, yeah. or the, they managed. They really managed those relationships uh, in a way that uh, you know probably really died out with them leaving the country, uh, because you know I think you, you make the point as well that you know Dostum, who was the the the, the man of the hour on the ground, uh, he was then you know thrown out uh, as, yeah. as as a warlord. But uh, I mean. What were we surprised by that? <laughs> I right, mean, I know what, how. What he he warlord in Afghanistan? Hold on, what what do you mean? Really? I know gambling in a casino. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. How, do, how do you expect people get to positions of power and maintain their power in, you know? And this is not um, also not the first war Afghanistan is fighting, right? I mean, Afghanistan has been at war for you know decades at this point. Um, right? So these these guys have survived and they've that have made a name for themselves uh, for a reason. Yeah, which is why yeah. we ultimately sided them. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that was a that that was a is it an error of judgment uh, or a naivety uh, that uh, we embraced this idea of limited war? Do you think that's something that we'll see in the future? This kind of uh, small footprint type, especially given the and, and I'm not I'm I'm slowly moving away, but just from your experience as a journalist and and having seen big part of the world, you know, in the kind of contestation with China. Um, is that something you see? I mean, I think, you know, one of the problems with what's just happened in Afghanistan and to sort of a lesser extent, you know, Iraq before that, you know, there's a danger that America just tries to sort of band down the hatches and turn in on itself. And, you know, this, and embraces this notion of, you know, we can just end wars by leaving. But, you know, the lesson 9-11 was that the war comes 
comes to America. Um, so I, I think, you know, it would be a tragedy and a big mistake and could lead to, you know, something catastrophic if uh, we felt we could kind of, you know, turn our back on on the world. Mm. Um, but, you know, we've got to sort of scale down, you know, there's, there's a, a middle ground, you know, between sort of isolationism and regime change and, you know, building new countries, you know, thousands of miles away from American shores. And so, I mean, you know, I think that a sort of, I mean, there are, you know, American troops, particularly special forces, certainly CIA officers, um, you know, all over the world. And so there is this small footprint that's sort of uh, going on. And, you know, I think that it's much pre- much more preferable than drone strikes. I and mean, we saw what happened on the ground with a drone strike, you know, mm. in August. Yeah. You know, even when we did have a, a presence there. Um, and so small numbers of Americans, elite military and intelligence, you know, not to mention other countries as well, you know, you know, the Anglosphere or NATO or the European Union or whatever, you you know, whatever sort of combination. And there are lots of countries that can do lots of things, um, you know, but, you know, small numbers of, of boots on the ground and kind of eyes and ears, I, I think are going to be very important. And I think war and conflict are part of the sort of natural state of, of, of man. And so, I mean, I think we've we've got a plan for limited wars because, you know, I, I don't think there's really any other option. Mm, mm. You, you talk about towards the end of the book, and this is maybe the last theme I want to touch on uh, because you, you mentioned it as well. It's a really important one. The dissatisfaction by some members of Team Alpha of how the war had gone and, and many of them uh, had suffered subsequently. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about their experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, Justin Sapp is a colonel now, still special forces, still serving at the US mission to the United Nations. Um, you know, David is recently retired, Scott Scott Spellmeyer's recently retired, and you know, they've spent, you know, big chunks of their lives in this country. Um they saw Mike Spann killed. Uh lots of other sort of comrades since then. And they also have a very sort of strong feeling for the Afghans, you know, Mm. I mean, David in particular talks about this a lot. I mean, he's moved to tears, you know, when he talks not just about Mike Spam, but Amanala, who was, Mm. you know, the Dossum's intelligence chief in the Daria Sioux Valley, who was, who was killed probably within a few seconds of Mike Spam. He was killed Mm. at the start of the uprising. Um, And so there's a sense of, you know, we, I mean, David used the word uh, shameful, um, that we sort of abandoned the Afghans. We abandoned the people who, you know, we relied on, who fought alongside us in 2001 and and, and subsequently, and that, you know, America's word should matter. And it seems at the moment it, it doesn't. So there, there, is a, there is a strong sense that, you know, there shouldn't have been a full withdrawal, that this a sort of, a limited U.S. presence, uh, as opposed to all-out sort of mm. war and hundred thousand plus troops, was something that was in U.S. interests and was sort of something that 
we sort of had a moral obligation to do hmm. uh, for the Afghans. Um, but, you know, these are practical people um, who operate in sort of the real world and they realize that, you know, things aren't perfect and, you know, also things change. And so it's it's really grim at the moment, but, you know, the Taliban's not going to be there forever. And what mm-hmm. they've done um, is they've channeled, I don't know, what sadness or anger or frustration or whatever emotion they're, they're feeling, and it's kind of a mixture of those things, um, into helping the Afghans, helping the Afghan allies. So David and Justin and Scott Spellmeyer and Shannon Spann are all working very hard, you know, behind the scenes to get Afghans out. Mm. And the translator I worked with a year ago is currently in Fort Dix in New Jersey, and they helped get him out. Um, Mm. And he's going to be living in my basement shortly. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, what they did at the beginning, you know, it's sort of a mission. They're just getting things done. They're improvising and they're sort of, you know, leaving the politics to one side and, 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 you know, focusing on what they can do practically. Mm. And so that's how they're sort of dealing with it. And, you know, I, I sense that helping the Afghan allies and realizing that what happened in August was bad. It's kind of something that most Americans anyway, agree with. So there's a little bit of, you know, everything's so divided here, mm-hmm. but on that issue, there's a sort of a unity and there's former military and, you know, civilians and just sort of good hearted people sort of banding together, sort of filling the vacuum left by mm-hmm. the government mm-hmm. in this case and helping these Afghans. So that's kind of something positive and has a little has echoes, I think, of of what happened after 9-11 as well. In fact, that was a very similar for Australia as well. There was a, very much the kind of, in the background, uh, people who had links across the world that were trying to get people out uh, while the government was getting its kind of, you know, program up and running or, or you mm. know, it's... So uh, I can certainly uh, second that. Uh, what about David Tyson? How did he... Because his story is is... To say extreme is probably an understatement. What yeah. he what he survived. How has he dealt with that? I guess trauma. But was it? Was yeah, it, it is. That's certainly, yeah, mm. certainly trauma. Um, well, he's a fascinating guy. You know, he's fascinating even before this because you know who's a as a seventeen year old high school student. He wrote off to the French Foreign Legion. You know, <laughs> to try and join, and then he, you know, his brother is a plumber who still lives with their mother who's 95 years old in Pennsylvania. And so he's a complete like outlier in, in the family. Mm. Um, and, you know, he embarked on this journey, you know, learning Russian and then Uzbek and Turkmen and, you know, and then joining the CIA and going to all these places. So he's a very, very interesting person anyway. And, you know, he wasn't prepared for what happened. I mean, nobody would be, but, but, you know, he, he, He'd been in the had had two short spells in the army, but was not like an elite warrior, a combat veteran, or 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 any of that stuff. But but you know when it counted, you know the kind of core of his character propelled him to sort of to act and to survive. And you know he was very seriously and, and still is sort of traumatized by what happened, and he he can't you know change his life. And so he took the decision. I talked I've talked to him about this sort of you know a great length to sort of incorporate it in his life. 
and to also live live his life because you know Mike Span and Amanala and many others you know can't live their lives so if you're the survivor or a survivor then you know to make their sort of sacrifice worth it you you need to mm. leave a good and productive lead a good and productive life and that's a choice because you can I guess you can let it overwhelm you and kind of you can drown in it or you can just or you can try and sort of use it uh in some sort of positive way and so I think partly for his own sort of therapeutic reasons and partly so that people can learn from his experience which very rare for somebody to go through that and survive you know David's you know internally in the CIA and now obviously kind of publicly through this book and 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 maybe sort of you know talking about it more publicly um he's you know he's he's talking about it and you know he's not hiding it he's sort of incorporating it um in his in his daily life and in his you know talking to people and that's kind of incredible you know it's kind of incredible to witness i mean he's you know he's a family man he's got mm. two uh grown-up children he became a very senior officer in the cia he was in the special uh, senior intelligence service uh he's one of the became one of the foremost russia experts in the cia worked on some incredible operations that he won't really tell me about um <laughs> but probably could be maybe another, another book, book or two. yeah yeah exactly yeah. um and so you know um, you know, he he has nightmares, sort of six out of seven days. You know, he'll be driving in his car and, you know, he'll listen to a piece of music or something and the tears will be streaming down his, his face. Mm. Um, uh, so he's still very affected by it, but, um, you know, he's happy. He, he delights in nature. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I think it's just, you know, when you've come so close to death and you've seen so much death, you know, it makes you appreciate life and just the mm. beauty of the of the simplest things. And so that's that's the kind of guy he is. And it's it's sort of remarkable and humbling to get to know somebody like that. How does he feel about? And, and I don't know, I don't know if this is something you touched on with him, but you know, now we have this kind of we collectively glorifying his actions, and you know rightly putting him up on a pedestal as a, as, a, as a hero, as somebody who's, you know, done something remarkable. How does he feel about that? How does that affect him? Oh, he's pretty uncomfortable about that. Hmm. And actually, you know, so he'll, you know, we've done a couple of talks together and he'll say things like, you know, oh, it's just, auto, you know, I acted automatically. It was sort of muscle memory. Hmm. There were no decisions taken. And, and I'll sort of say, well, yeah, but, you know, when you heard... Mike shouting, Dave, 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 you know, you ran towards him despite the incredible danger. You could have run in the opposite direction. You could have frozen. And yes, it it wasn't a rational decision. You're, you're in a state of, you know, Instinct, already, guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, you there was tunnel vision. Was, time was slowing down. He was lost sense of most of his hearing. And so, you know, it was a very, very extreme situation. But yes, the instinct and the core of his character made him act the way he did. And that's something that's quite sort of special. Mm. And and he's just like, you can tell he sort of doesn't particularly like me saying that because it's too much sort of focus on him. Mm. And he is very much, you know, this is about Team Alpha and it's about our Afghan allies. And it just happened that he was in that position. 
you know, that most of us will never be in and we hope we'll mm. never be in it. And so he, you know, he was awarded the Distinguished Intelligence Cross, which is the CIA's highest award for valor, sort of an equivalent mm. of the Victoria Cross or mm. the Medal of Honor. And so he's he's been recognized for his bravery. Um, but he would like the focus to be on, you know, Mike, Team Alpha, and and the Afghans. And that's and that's genuine. You know, it's it's mm. not some kind of just you know, pose. Oh, I have no um, doubt. Yeah, I mean, if, I mean, yeah. the trauma that he's carrying and survivor guilt, and I, I that, that, which is why I'm asking him because I, I'd yeah. imagine for him it would be, you know, quite quite difficult to 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 receive accolades, where you yeah, know, you know, for a situation where he, you know, probably feels like he had little influence on, and he couldn't, in his mind, I suspect, save yeah one of his uh, brothers in arms, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, he said, you know, he said, you know, like, li- listen, if you. If you put Mike and me next to each other in in that fort, mm. you know you choose Mike to be the survivor every time. You know mm. he's thirty two years old, he's super fit. You know a marine. Um, David had the least military training experience of all eight of them, but you know Mike was happened to be standing much closer to the pink house, mm. and the prisoners jumped on him, and you know he he had he had no chance. Mm. Um, and David did. And so he's, I guess, not a sort of, you know, he doesn't go to church, but, you know, he believes in something higher, you know, mm-hmm. and a higher mm-hmm. meaning to life. And, um, you know, I think that sort of sustains him as well. And because you can't make sense of all this, um, this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he thinks about it very, uh, very deeply and all the time. No doubt. Um, and, and maybe the final question uh, is about Shannon, who features in the book a lot, rightly so, yeah. because of, you know, she's also a former CIA officer uh, and she's Mike's wife at the time, of course. H- how does she feel about the book and about the whole situation? Have you had a chance to speak to her? Since oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I speak to her quite a lot. Um, she was She's a very private person. Mm. I mean, after Mike's death, she's, she delivered his eulogy at Arlington Cemetery with the cameras all there. Mm. And she did a number of sort of TV appearances and she was um, uh, the Bush White House's guest at the State of the Union in 2002. And then she sort of disappeared from the public eye. And, you know, her life has been difficult. Um, I mean, Mike, you know, Mike had a three-month-old baby with Shannon, um, Jake, who's now, you know, 20 nearly 21, I guess. Mm, mm. Um, it, from his former marriage, Mike had daughters aged nine and four who were who are now uh, grown up. But Mike and Shannon only just got married. Mike's first wife had terminal cancer and died at the end of 2001. So his two daughters lost both their parents. Shannon was kind of new on the scene and... Um, she was a lawyer from California, very different from, you know, the sort of Alabama span family. And, you know, I'm sure in time would have been incorporated in that mm. through Mike, mm. but, you know, Mike was just ripped out of it. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, she ended up going to Australia with the three children, um, eventually, uh, met another CIA officer. She was based in Canberra. Um, and he, he was in, uh, Jakarta, I believe, um, and they married. 
they had another child together, a boy who's uh, I think 10 or 11 now. And, you know, but it's been a very difficult path. You know, you have, you know, children, you know, Jake's the, Jake's the, the son who's in, he's now at the center of the family in a way rather than Mike, you know, because he's the product of, of Mike and Shannon, but then, you know, one other child is Shannon's and two other children are, uh, are Mike's. And it's very complicated. Families mm, are complicated yeah, yeah. at the best of times. And But when you add sort of, you know, not only divorce, but traumatic death in, in the middle of this, it's, 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 it's a huge amount to deal mm. with. And her life was just completely turned upside. It had already been transformed because, you know, she had met Mike and they'd had a kind of a whirlwind you know, relationship and marriage and a sort of unexpected pregnancy. And so everything was turned upside mm, down anyway. Mm, and then it was mm. turned again and she's yeah. had to deal with this. And I think, you know, we talked about it at length and I, you know, it's some of this is included in the book that she did the classic, you know, put one foot in front of the other soldier on, you know, don't admit weakness and just, you know, forge ahead. Um, mm, and mm. now she's, you know, reflects on that and thinks you know that was probably not the right you know way to go sometimes and you know to sort of examine you know confront the sort of the trauma you've you've experienced and the feelings you've had and the difficulties you and the family are facing um to sort of address that in real time rather than sort of store it all up and then sort of try to deal with it retrospectively is is probably a, a better approach so i mean a, a bit like david but in different way in a mm. different way she she's very introspective she's self-critical she's very thoughtful about um you know what she's been through and continues to go, go through and 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 other people um you know mike's parents and uh you know his his daughters and so you know it's been it's been incredible to get to get to know her as well. And, mm. um, you know, she was reluctant at the beginning to talk to me. Um, and in the end, you know, she, she texted me, I got a text from her eventually. I'd written her a letter, no reply, you know, I'd had other people, you know, David contacted her and, and, you know, no response. And then I just got a text from her saying, you know, everybody's saying I should talk to you. So I guess I will, <laughs> you know, and that sort of opened the door. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a bit like David, she's uncomfortable about the focus, too much focus on her. She's a little bit, you know, at times she's been concerned about too much focus on Mike. So she's a big one for Team Alpha as well. And she, because she was a CIA officer and she believed very, very strongly in the mission. Um, and she, you know, she, I think she was pleased in the end that the central focus of the book was was not just Mike, but it was sort of Team Alpha and the CIA and what the country did in that period. You know, she's sort of, uh, you know, she's embraced it. And I'm sure there are elements of the book that she finds painful. But, you know, the sense I get from her is that she, she feels that the story um, is worthwhile mm. and, you know, she's prepared to suffer, I guess, a little bit more because she believes it's, because she's believes it's important and significant and, and it's a story that should have been told.
Mm. And I asked that question because I thought you did a fantastic job of honouring her suffering as well. And, and it kind of speaks to a much broader point of service spouses of men and women yeah. who go forth and serve. We oftentimes focus on their trauma and their suffering and the yeah. pain that they carry post-service or during service. Uh, but we oftentimes yeah. forget it's, you know, the families oftentimes pay as high, if not a higher price, because they're not there and then on the ground. They they are living in anxiety and uh, in uh, under question marks for as long as their spouse is away. So I, th- I actually thought you'd, you honoured her suffering uh, remarkably well, and, and I think uh, that comes through uh, really clearly the book. Thank you. I mean, the Span family has been through an incredible amount and continues to. Mm. And, you know, it's very, you know, very difficult kind of terrain to navigate because, you know, you want to tell the story, you want to say what happened, uh, you know it's going to be painful, and that there's different views within every family on on events. And so you have to, you know, try and do justice to all those people while also writing something that works for the general reader. And this, you know, I, you know, I had kind of sleepless nights about some of this, you know, what to include, hmm. what to leave out. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad you felt that. And, you know, I hope that, you know, Shannon feels that too. Hmm. Uh, what's next for you, Toby? Um, movie, movie series. <laughs> <laughs> there are some discussions about that, which is um, which is good um, because I do think you know it would be great. There are different ways of telling stories, and I think a screen version of this or a series or something would be fantastic. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I've written three books so far, and there've been ten years between them. <laughs> so one published in 1999 one was published in 2011 one was published in 2021 <laughs> so i need to up my hit rate and, and i fully you know because i'm now you know i want to be full-time on 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 books mm-hmm. you know either my own or sort of ghosting or editing or you mm-hmm. know but principally my own and so i have another idea i'm sort of procrastinating a bit about you know writing the proposal um but uh yeah, hopefully there'll be something. Uh, which are willing will... to share uh, the well, idea in 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 in, in wave tops. Yeah, it's something about Vietnam mm-hmm. and the CIA and sort of uh, race in America as as well could be an element of it. And I, you know, another sort of great true story. And uh, yeah, that that's that's what it is. And I um, hope that I can get the get a, d- a decent deal and. You know, a bit like First Casualty, you never know at the start of a project, you know, how much you can find out and and how the story will go. But, mm. you know, it, it uh, I think it's a good idea and we'll, we'll see, you know, fingers crossed. Toby, it's been absolutely fascinating. Absolutely loved your book uh, and loved chatting to you. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For your time. All right. Thank you, Maz. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it and I uh, appreciate you having me on. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.